So our story today relates to a church in Antioch, in the part of the world now known as Syria. They had sent out Paul and Barnabas to be missionaries, to go plant churches in other communities in the region of the world now known as Turkey. And they had come back after several years with a good report of how God had done signs and wonders, even though they had been persecuted, he had protected them, and how they had visited the places where they had started churches again and raised up elders for them, and now they are coming back home. And the last uh, two verses of Acts 14, it says that they sailed to Antioch from, from southern Turkey, where they had been commended to the grace of God for the work which they had completed. When they had come and gathered the church together, they reported all that God had done with them, and that he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. So they stayed there a long time with the disciples. So when they went into southern Turkey, they would visit the synagogue because the gospel is to the Jew first. They would make friends and begin to share the gospel, and they would also meet Gentiles that were interested in Jewish uh, culture and Judaism. And they would lead people to Jesus and stay there until they got ran out. And they would meet in other places and uh, continue meeting in that town until they had to flee for their lives and go to the next town and similar approach to things would happen. And, uh, and then they made a round trip coming back through the places where they had established churches and raised up leaders. And then they came back home after traveling hundreds, literally hundreds of miles by ship and land now they're back home and they're resting for a long time. And then something happened. Humanity got in the way. Chapter 15, verse 1. Certain men came down from Judea. Now Judea is south of Syria, but it's higher in elevation, the mountains of, of Jerusalem, uh, where they had come from, from the original church. They came down. No doubt they were welcome. Come on, man. Come and share the word with us, brother. And they got up and began to teach this. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So, he'd been, so being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria. It's a 400-mile trek. Describing the conversion of the Gentiles, and the results of their mission trip, and they caused great joy to all the brethren. Verse 4, And when they had come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up, saying. So here's where these brothers had come from. This is what they said. It is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Otherwise, they're not saved. Well, this is bad news, especially for men. Circumcision for a grown man is like a major surgery. It takes three weeks to recover from. Now, for a baby, not so much. This is an interesting uh, point, a little sidebar here. The law said to circumcise your male children on the eighth day of their life. Science has discovered that that is the ideal day for a surgery. 
the blood clotting agents in the blood are at their highest percentage on that day than any day prior or after of a male's life. The eighth day, it's I think vitamin K and prothrombin are at their highest levels in the blood of the eight-day-old son. Ideal day for observing the law of Moses. But these are grown men, and they have to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses, not just circumcision, but according to the custom of Moses. It had to be a religious event. If a Jew in our day and time has had circumcision done at the hospital, it's not declared to be legitimate in the eyes of the law. So they have to have a ceremony, not where they circumcise the guy again, but (laughs) they draw a little blood in this ceremony before he's now kosher according to the custom of Moses. So, this is the church where these guys had come from. That's why they went to Jerusalem. Not because the Pope was there or the circle of bishops or headquarters was there. This was where the problem had come from. And so they went They went to the source of the issue. Now the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. Verse 7 And when there had been much dispute, Peter rose up and said to them, Men and brethren, you know that a good while ago God chose among us that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. This happened in Acts 10 at the house of a man named Cornelius in Caesarea. So, verse 8, God who knows the heart acknowledged them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us, which is in Acts chapter 2 and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you test God? Everybody say, why? Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? Now, Jesus came and simplified things for us. He made the law a matter of the heart, In fact, he said, come to me, all of you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. Here, these guys are, Pharisee believers, wanting to put a yoke that was hard for them even to bear. In fact, Peter basically says it's impossible. Why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. Now I have here copies of the 613 laws reduced down to 613 phrases. On 11 by 17, both sides, triple columns, size 8 font. Some are size 6 font just to get them where they're all in one line. I have a stack of them here. If you're interested in having your own copy of the laws, this is not their laws in their entirety. The technicalities aren't there. They're just there in a phrase. So, may not be completely accurate, but there are 613 of them. I got them from Wikipedia, which is not the most reliable source, but I guarantee you a more reliable source would prove the point even more. This is a yoke. Just to demonstrate how many 613 laws are, I did them single column, 
size 18 font, single space. And it created a scroll, just the laws now, not the Torah, but the laws reduced down to one phrase each, produced a scroll 15 feet long. Why, Peter said, why trouble them by putting a yoke on their neck which, we, which neither we nor our fathers were able to bear? Why? Now, there is such a thing. It's not just a Jewish thing, but it's a religious thing of, of legalism that can creep in even to Christians' lives, where a person will put rules on other people that they themselves can't even abide by. In fact, you got to watch certain preachers, and they start preaching against certain sins, then they get busted later for that very issue. Remember the guy that said Jim and Tammy Baker were cancers that must be removed from the body of Christ? He was in the headlines himself in a matter of months. It's by grace that we're saved through faith. Amen? Amen? Peter said, we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. The grace that saves us. What the law did is it never made you righteous. It, it exposed your unrighteousness so you saw your need to be redeemed from your unrighteousness. And you went to the priest with sacrifices which were offered up for you to atone for your sins. But in the new covenant, which is a better covenant, the old covenant is fulfilled. Christ is the priest we come to, and he is the resurrected sacrifice that died for the sins of the world. And when he said it is finished, he meant it is finished. The handwriting of ordinances that was against us he removed from us by nailing it to the cross. He did not destroy it. He fulfilled it. He's the only man that ever lived that did not have to offer a sacrifice for his sins. He was tempted in all points as we are, but he never sinned. Why? He was the Lamb of God that came to take away the sins of and so to add to that, this, that proved we need a Savior, is like going backwards. The, the, Paul wrote in one of his books that the law was a schoolmaster that prepared us for Christ. It fenced in his people, made them a culture revolving around sacrificial systems and priesthoods so that when the Messiah came, they would be ready. Oh, yeah, bring us that yoke. It's a beautiful thing. So let's continue with the story. Then all the multitude kept silent and listened to Barnabas and Paul, describing how many miracles and wonders God had worked through them among the Gentiles. And after they had become silent, James answered, saying, now, this is James, the brother of Jesus. Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon, who is Peter, has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with these words, the prophets agree just as it is written. And he begins to 
quote from a scroll of what's called the Minor Prophets, part of the Tanakh, the Old Testament, a scroll of the prophets of smaller prophetic books. In that scroll is a prophecy given in the book we know as the book of Amos, chapter 9. This is a fulfillment of Amos' prophecy. Verse 16, After this I will return and will rebuild the tabernacle or house of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins and I will set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. Even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who does all these things. So in the prophets, in the midst of these prophecies about God who scattered them because of their unfaithfulness to them, to him, is going to restore them and raise up a king of the lineage of David who would reign over them forever. This is a messianic prophecy. This is recognized in Jesus as part of the household of David. It also kind of points to worship because David's the one that set up a tabernacle on Mount Zion. Remember, he couldn't build the temple and he set up praise and worship 24-7 around the Ark of the Covenant with the priests, Levites, and ministers 24-7 praise and worship and prayer. And David tasted the New Testament. That's the privilege we have. He so tasted the New Testament that when he broke the law, he, he, he committed some serious things. He was to be killed for adultery and murder. God extended mercy to him, gave him a taste of the New Testament. Through him came Jesus, the son of David. So it's a beautiful thing, this fulfillment of prophecy. Verse 18, James continues, Known to God from eternity are all his works. God knew this was going to happen. Verse 19, Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Four requirements are asking the Gentile believers to abide by that relate to the law of Moses, all right? For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Now we'll talk about that a little further on in the sermon, verse 21. All right, verse 22. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company back to Antioch, 400 miles, with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, who's also called Barsabas, or son of Sabas, and Silas, leading men among the brothers. So we're not only going to send a letter, but we're going to send representatives. They wrote this letter to them. They start as all letters start with who it's from, okay? The apostles, elders, and the brethren. That's who it's from. To the brethren who are of the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Because the area is in danger of these guys drawing them away from Jesus back into the old covenant law. Greetings. Now look at this, verse 24. Since we have heard that some who went out from us, these misleading brothers, have troubled you with words, unsettling your souls, saying... You must be circumcised and keep the law. 
Remember, they said you must command them to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses. So they're acknowledging that these brothers who came from them did that. To whom we gave no such commandment. The people that did this were not authorized. It seemed good to us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who will also report the same things by word of mouth. And here is their ruling. For it seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay upon you no greater burden. Can we say no greater burden? No greater burden than these necessary things. That you abstain from things offered to idols, that was contrary to the Torah, from blood, that's contrary to the law of Moses, the Torah, from things strangled, that's contrary to the law of Moses, and from sexual immorality. That's contrary to the law of Moses, but also contrary to the commands of Christ. You know, Jesus came and gave commands and then gave a great commission. Go into all the world and make disciples and baptize these disciples and teach them to observe everything I commanded. Now, earlier in his ministry, he distinguished himself from Moses. He said, Moses said this, but I say that. Moses permitted you to write a certificate for divorce, but I say from the beginning that was not God's plan. So when he said everything I commanded, it's there in the Gospels. You can read what he commanded. So the apostles' doctrine, their teaching, was what Jesus had to say. Love your enemies. Don't hate. Don't lust. Do good to those who persecute you. Forgive those who've harmed you. A new commandment I give to you, love one another as I have loved you. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well, fare well. So these were the issues related to the law of Moses that they wanted to emphasize. You guys try to abide by this. Why? It seemed good to them and to the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'd speak to us today from your word, that we see life from your perspective. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want you to be aware of some things. That's why today's topic is on the subject of be aware. Tell somebody, be aware. There's three things we need to be aware of, and I'm only going to talk about one of them, which is beware of Judaizing. That is, believing you must become Jewish, You must observe the law of Moses to be saved. And this is happening in our day. Friends of mine have been drawn into this teaching. And I believe it is a false teaching. So part of today's sermon is to warn you, to strengthen you, so that when when this wind of doctrine blows through your house very persuasively, you don't yield to it because it's a distraction. It will make you ineffective and not enjoy the grace that God has given you. But also beware of Gentilizing. I wish I had time today to talk about this as well. Because what happened here happened in the reverse a few centuries later where a person had to deny their Jewishness according to be a Christian, in order to be a Christian. The church required that. Obviously, Satan had a hand in that. And the church stopped taking the gospel to the Jew first because it no longer was for them. And if you want to be a Christian, you've got to deny your Jewishness. 
That wasn't what was said here. So beware of that. We'll talk about that another time. And beware of racism. Beware of cultural misunderstanding, cultural elitism. Beware of it. It is evil. It does not recognize that God created all things, all humans in his image. It's, I better stop, otherwise I won't get to the sermon today. Beware of Judaizing. Just for the sake of review, let's look at verse 1. Certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. These men were what theologians call Judaizers. You guys who are Gentiles really aren't saved yet. If you really love God, you get circumcised and keep the law of Moses. Verse 5, some of the sect of Pharisees who believed, these were believers, they were just they just didn't fully understand all that Jesus did for us. The sect of the Pharisees, some of them who believe, rose up saying, it is necessary, it is necessary, it is imperative, it's important to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. Now, some of today's Judaizers, when this chapter brings up, they'll do a couple things. One is they'll really emphasize verse 21, which we'll get to in a minute, but they'll de-emphasize verse 5 and say, this was just about circumcision. And we're not saying you have to be circumcised, but you've got to keep the Torah if you want to be saved. You know what that is? That is cafeteria-style Torah-keeping. And James said, as we'll see in a minute, if you want to live by the law and you violate one point, you're guilty of violating all of them. So you want to go back into the law, this is not good. Talk about taking, losing the joy of your salvation. Here is a synagogue rejoicing over a new handwritten copy of the Torah that they had purchased and was made available to them uh, by um, the men that made it in Israel. And so they're rejoicing. It's a glorious thing. It's the entire, uh, in Hebrew, the entire copy of Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. It contains 613 laws plus their history. Glorious thing. Do you know one of the 613 laws is every man must in his lifetime hand copy a copy of the scroll. Or purchase it. Now they have all sorts of loopholes and no doubt being part of a synagogue that has one kind of gets you a buy, but it's in the Torah. It, it, it was a yoke hard to bear. Now there are those that will argue with me because now that the sacrificial system has been done away with due to the destruction of the temple and we'll also see the finished work of Christ, it has made it much easier. But in this day and time in Acts 15, the temple was still around. In fact, we'll see in a few weeks, Paul offered a sacrifice. He brought a sacrifice, not that he believed he needed it, but just to appease the Jews he was trying to fellowship with, to be an influence for the sake of the gospel. He became all things to all men. But when it comes to Gentiles, he was a champion for us that we not draw, be drawn into that culture. Preparing a new Torah takes about 2,000 hours for a person to do it. The five books of Moses are handwritten in Hebrew on parchment using a turkey quill and an elaborate 
calligraphy to form the scrolls 304,805 letters. This scroll is read in its entirety every year, every Shabbat, every Sabbath day, they will read a portion from the Torah, and at the end of the year, they will have completed hearing it. All right, not throwing stones at that, just part of Jewish culture. In Matthew 7, Jesus said, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Man, he simplifies things, doesn't he? A lawyer tried to trip him up in Matthew 22 and said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all. Can we say all? All the law and the prophets. These Judaizers that had come into the Gentile congregations were trying to draw them away from this to get tangled up in all the intricacies and details of the law of Moses. Now, before we look down our noses at them, you know how many laws you live under in America? As America becomes more godless, we have to have more laws to compensate. If you lined up our laws in in law books volumes, the books would be over six feet. From book to book to book to book, a shelf over six foot long. And that's not counting your HOA books (laughs) and your policies and procedures at work. But this deals with your salvation that Jesus purchased for you on the cross. And to get into earning that is not good. Jesus' brother, the one that was a spokesman here in Acts 15, said this in chapter 2 of his letter to believers, verse 8, If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you do well. But if you show partiality you commit sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So if you're a racist, if you play favorites, it's not good. It's not loving your neighbors yourself. You don't like that done to you. For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of all. Say one, all, one, 613. Now, I'm pretty open to the concept that there may be more than 613 laws in the Torah. Because I read all of them in, in phrase form. I've obviously read the Torah, but looking at just for laws in phrase form, I read all of them and I did not see that law that I did find, it's in, the, it's in the Torah scriptures, that says, if you die and leave your children an inheritance, the firstborn gets double of what the other kids get. In other words, if each child gets $10,000, your firstborn son gets $20,000. It's what makes the parable of the prodigal son uh, 
such an interesting story. Why, did the, why was the elder brother so ticked off? According to the law, he would get twice what the little brother got. Makes him look kind of petty, doesn't it? We get jealous of our brother who maybe has messed up, but God has forgiven him and restored him. It's pretty petty. Living under the law is a tremendous burden. And I have high respect for Orthodox Jews who, according to Romans 11, their eyes just haven't been opened yet to Jesus. But they endeavor to live by the law even though they're not able to do the sacrifices. There is no temple. They endeavor to do it. But it is hard work to be an Orthodox Jew. This is a mikvah. We would say a baptismal tank where before special events, they immerse themselves. But listen to what women have to do on a monthly basis. Seven days after the end of her menstrual cycle, she has to thoroughly scrub and bathe herself and then go to the community mikvah. In this picture, it's in Crown Heights section of Brooklyn. And be immersed. She has to immerse herself. And then a benediction is prayed over her then she is free to resume marital relations that had been suspended for nearly two weeks before her period began and seven days after her period began. So every lunar cycle, you got a week for intimacy. Some women may say, thank God. (laughs) But let me tell you, This has been a monthly rite for centuries observed by Orthodox women and occasionally by men. I guess they're not as devout. Its observance is so important that Orthodox Jews are required to sell a Torah scroll if they have to to pay for the construction of a mikvah pool. If there's any Judaizers in the house and you want to live under the law, Everybody say, thank God for Jesus. This is interesting. Um, This is a a Jewish mother who is attempting to live Orthodox, so she has a kosher kitchen. When you buy new dishes, those dishes have to be immersed in living water. So here she is in a lake of some sort, uh, or maybe in the ocean, immersing a new dish prepare it for use. Obviously, she would wash it after this, but you have to go through these ritual cleansings. Otherwise, you're not kosher. If you want your kitchen really made kosher, if you're running a kosher restaurant, this guy has to come every so often, a professional rabbi who takes a blowtorch to your equipment to get it clean. So your black skillet, not so much. Keeping Shabbat, wonderful time. It's like Christmas, man. You bless your kids every Friday night and have a wonderful meal and you rest and spend time with God. It's great. But you're not allowed to travel only so far. So to compensate for it, they set up Shabbat boundaries where on the Sabbath day, your yard becomes part of a community, a commonwealth. This is in Miami Beach where they have a 10-mile perimeter marked by boundaries declared to be common property on the Sabbath day. 
Is that a loophole or what? In Jerusalem, they've got one of the largest ones, a 30-mile perimeter. It's called a roof. It's built and maintained by people skilled in the art of a roof boundary making. And within these boundaries, they can spend the day visiting friends, walking, pushing baby carriages, carrying prayer books and keys within its limits. And you want to live under the law of Moses. Peter, in his defense, said, God who knows the heart acknowledged them, the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us and made no distinction between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith, just like he has us. Now, therefore, why do you test God by putting a yoke on the neck of the disciples which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. Now, as I said earlier, there are some that say, oh, the law of Moses is wonderful. It's not a yoke. Oh, really? You want to look at those slides again? It's certainly an easier yoke now that the sacrificial system has stopped. It's still a yoke. But we believe that through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we shall be saved in the same manner as they. This is Peter, the man who was given the keys by the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who was told whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. I would say he's an authority, would you not? We are justified by faith through grace, and that faith is not of ourselves, it's a gift of God. Just As the Jews are saved, so we are saved. The brother of Jesus, after quoting Amos 9, verse 18, said, Known to God from eternity are all his works. Therefore I judge that we should not trouble those from among the Gentiles who are turning to God, but that we write to them to abstain from things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from things strangled, and from blood. Meat offered to idols not to eat it. Things that are killed by strangling them, nope, and blood. Why are these rules? Those Gentiles did this kind of thing and still do in a lot of circles. Well, I like blood. Well, don't do it around a Jewish person. It's offensive to them. And the sexual immorality thing was something Jesus addressed as well not only in the Gospels, but in his seven letters in the book of Revelation. Sexual union, sexual activity outside of a relationship between husband and wife, a husband and his wife, a wife and her husband, anything beyond that is immoral. It's fornication. So you can throw adultery in the fornication basket, homosexuality in the fornication basket, It all is immoral not to do it as believers, according to Jesus and according to his brother emphasized here. And, of course, according to the Torah. Boy, it goes into great detail about that which is sinful. Now everybody wants a copy, right? It's here for you to take. Now this verse 21. For Moses has had throughout many generations those who preach him in every city being read in the synagogues every Sabbath. Why did he say that? 
And why didn't he add that to the letter? This is an explanation to the hearers to defend what they were going to say. Now, the Judaizers of today say, see, the new believers are supposed to go to synagogue every Sabbath. There they would hear the law, and eventually they would begin to follow it. But because they're new believers, let's not overload them with the 613 commands, 613 plus laws. Let's not overload them. Let them go to Sabbath every week, and eventually they'll line up. So then there's a law. You've got to go to synagogue every Sabbath. They didn't say that. It wasn't five things, it was four things. So what did he mean? Well, here's some other explanations. You can choose which one you want or have your own. Uh, One person suggests that since Moses has disciples everywhere, and since there are Jews throughout the Roman Empire, their scruples are to be respected. This is why we're setting up these four rules. It reflects sensitivity to Jewish believers as well. For the sake of unity in the church, here's what you need to do. All right, that's one view. Another view is verse 21 is there because in every city, Gentiles are responding to to the public proclamation of Judaism in the synagogues and are becoming proselytes and God-fearers. This will continue, and Judaism will lose nothing if some Gentiles who never belonged to Moses anyway are not required to become Jews. In other words, if the pro-circumcision faction is anxious about allowing Gentiles to become Christians without becoming Jews first, will seriously reduce the number of Jewish proselytes not to worry. It's not going to affect what's already happening. Because in every synagogue, there was a certain amount of Gentiles, and they all didn't become believers. So Judaism is continuing. So don't worry, this is not a threat to Judaism. Another view is these Gentile Christians, many of them have been hearing the the Old Testament in the synagogues, but have chosen not to convert to Judaism. Why press them now and put this obstacle in their way precisely when they've made a commitment to follow the God of Israel and His Son, Jesus? The Gentile believers who never belonged to Moses anyway should be encouraged along the new path and participation in God's people open for them by Yeshua, their Messiah. And another view is since Moses is read in the synagogues every Sabbath, Gentile believers who attend synagogue will keep hearing the three or four points that will remind them to keep these things because they'll be emphasized. We'll keep them sensitized to them. So what did he mean? I don't know. It's there, but it was not in the letter. And if it's important to go to synagogue every Sabbath, why wasn't it ever echoed in other scriptures? And why did Paul and Barnabas go back to each congregation they planted and appointed elders for them? Appointed pastors in their midst, teachers, to lead these flocks. Why did Jesus, through John and Revelation, send, uh, dictate seven letters to be written to the leaders, the messengers of seven different churches? Didn't mention the synagogues and the rabbis. It's contrary, that take is contrary to to the New Testament as a whole. So if you're okay with me saying, I don't really know, 
Uh, maybe he was saying, hey, the Jews have had their chance. He's been preached for centuries. Now here's Jesus, his way. Let's not worry about it. Let's continue with what he had to say. We're not disrespecting Moses. It's continuing. It's not going to stop that. So, in conclusion, we must be aware. We must be aware of false teachings, not just Judaizing. There's all kinds of other teachings that will lead you astray. Lead you astray. If you really love God, you'll get immersed three times. Once for the name of the Father, once for the name of the Son, and once, once for the name of the Holy Spirit. If you really love God, you won't grow a beard. If you really love God, you'll shave your head. If you really love God, you'll never cut your hair. If you really love God, you know, if there's, you heard that old Southern Gospel song, if your hair's too long, there's sin in your heart. If you really love God, you'll handle these snakes. These people have persuasive arguments. They have maybe one phrase. If you really love God, you'll get baptized for all your dead relatives so they can escape hell. False teachings, be aware of them. But our focus is Jesus, all right? We're not going on a rampage against cults. Be aware of God's love for everyone. Everybody's quick to say yes. All right, but what about this take on it? Be aware of God's love for all nations, all ethnicities. The people you may struggle with, God loves them as much as he loves you. We need to be aware of that. We need to be aware of our own sinfulness. Be aware. So we can come to the altar and repent. Be aware of our need for God's grace. Who needs God's grace? And be aware of Jesus' perfect Christmas Day of 1999, the last Sunday we met in the 20th century. We were blessed to have a guest speaker who's quite a well-known person now. He's a messianic leader in Israel part of the year, every year, named Ron Cantor. Maybe you were here. Somebody, a visitor asked, how did a church like this get a speaker like that? Very knowledgeable young man. And he did a, a, a discovery in research in his own culture, that in the Talmud is a recording of history that said God never accepted any sacrifices for 40 years. The 40th year being 70 A.D. when the temple was destroyed. So from 30 A.D., or as Jews say, C.E., common era, 30 A.D., when Christ died, yeah, it's strange. He was born 3 B.C., the 30 A.D. God did not accept their sacrifices for 40 years. The Talmud says this. Hi, everyone. I'm Ron Cantor with Ma'oz Media. Believe it or not, Orthodox Judaism itself testifies to the validity of the sacrificial death of Yeshua. In fact, the Talmud itself indirectly confirms that Yeshua was the final sacrifice for sin. Okay, what is the Talmud? Orthodox Judaism teaches that when God gave Moses the Torah, he also gave him an oral law. And this oral law was passed down orally from generation to generation. 
Only in the second century was it written down or codified in what is known as the Talmud. And the Talmud itself, which in the eyes of Orthodox Jews is equal to scripture, says that God rejected the Yom Kippur sacrifices every year from 30 CE until the year 70 CE. You can find that in Tractate Yoma 39b. According to the Talmud, there were several signs by which the people would know whether or not God had received the sacrifice and forgiven their sins. First, the priests would draw lots from an urn. One of the lots had written on it the word Le Hashem, or for the Lord. The other had the words Le Azazel. Now, if the priest drew the lot Le Hashem in his right hand, that meant that God had received the sacrifice. However, if it showed up in the left hand, it meant the opposite, that God had rejected the sacrifice. We're talking about the same result over 40 years. In fact, if you just tried to flip a coin five times in a row, the same side, that's a three in 100 chance. The chances of doing that 40 times in a row is over one in one trillion. And the Talmud claims that that is exactly what happened in the first century. Another sign was that a scarlet thread was tied to the horn of the scapegoat and it would supernaturally turn white. Actually, part of this thread would be taken from the scapegoat and tied to the temple doors. This way the people would be able to see if it turned white or not. And this also did not happen during those 40 years. Now there were other signs as well, but the main point is this. According to the most respected post-Second Temple period Jewish document, the Talmud, God rejected the Yom Kippur sacrifices every single year until the temple was destroyed. However, the Talmud fails to mention, now whether through ignorance or conspiracy, I don't know, is what took place in 30 CE, the year that God began to reject the sacrifices. Of course, that was the year that Yeshua became our sacrifice. Yes, in 30 CE, the dates that the rabbis and the sages say that the God of Israel stopped receiving the Yom Kippur sacrifices, Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah, died for the sins of Israel and the nations. I thank you for the sacrifice that you made for us, for the sins of the world. Give us a fresh appreciation for that offering. Lord, the law is a demonstration of just how good the gospel is. Such good news for us that you have made a way by being the perfect sacrifice. You didn't stop there, but you became the great high priest to make sure, to assure all who call upon you receive the benefits of that sacrifice. So today, you may be Jewish, you may be Gentile, Jesus died for you, and he arose from the dead for you, and he is your high priest to make sure that his blood sacrifice atones for your sin. Now, atoning would cover for a year, but he did more than atone. He redeemed from sin permanently. 
So the offer is extended to you 24-7. Today I'm reminded you of this offer. You've never heard it. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give peace for your souls. I will give you wholeness in your relationship with God through what he did for you. And it begins by calling on his name. A simple prayer like this. Can we pray it together just to kind of model? doesn't have to be the exact words, but from your heart, you say something like this together. Oh God in heaven, I come to you like I am, a sinner. I recognize you died for my sins as our sacrifice. And I call on your name for the forgiveness of my sin. And I say, Jesus, forgive me. Jesus, save me. Jesus, take my life and use me for your glory. Fill me with your spirit. Lead me in your ways. You've not ever done that. You need to do that. Maybe you've done that and gotten off track. Stop following Jesus. You stop meeting with other believers like this and getting encouraged from the scriptures and worshiping with other people that love the Lord. You need to get back on track. So just say, Lord, I'm coming home. Repentance is a change of mind. It can involve crying and tears and all that, but that can wear off. Ultimately, it's a decision in your mind to change your mind. I'm going to follow Jesus, and he says to meet with other believers, and I'm going to do it. Welcome to the family. Amen. And we stand. You'd like your own copy of Wikipedia's version of the 613 are up here. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord cause His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you His peace. May you live with a fresh awareness of the perfect sacrifice that was given You are free. The handwriting of ordinances that was against us, that convicted us of our sin, has been nailed to his cross, and we go free in Jesus' name. Amen. Go get them, tigers. The cage is open.